0: Alright, well, good morning. This is not made for a hobbit like me. Let's bring this down a little. So, uh, George is partly right. It is Epiphany, but I uh, sacrificed the, uh, the liturgical calendar on the altar of the seminary calendar. And we'll be preaching from a psalm this morning as, the, as we demon students are going through the psalms this week. So, scripture this morning is from Psalm 67. I'll uh, actually click along with us here. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. So this is a very little known psalm, not preached on very often. In fact, I was I love it. And yet so when I went to look to see what guys like Martin Luther had to say about it, I was shocked to find that in five volumes that Martin Luther wrote about the Psalms, he just bypassed Psalm 67. He decided not to write on it at all. So of course I begin to realize, am I crazy? Uh, Did I see something here? Or is Martin Luther crazy? Um, I'll reserve judgment and just say, it's in the canon, so we'll preach it. But, you know, I think one of the things, this is a psalm that would have been used by Israel in liturgical settings, usually at the Feast of Tabernacles, to, to thank God for the harvest. But occasionally you stumble upon a scholar who says, but it doesn't show all the signs of a thanksgiving psalm because it doesn't just thank God for what he's done, but it asks for more. It's like being given everything and then saying, a little more please, because it seems to ask God for more. It's, it's a little strange feature of a psalm, of a Thanksgiving psalm. And yet I think what it has to say, who, it's, who says it and who it points to, shows us a radical understanding of, the, of Thanksgiving that Canada needs to hear. I'm from Calgary, but I was born and raised in downtown Toronto in Little Portugal, so I know Toronto quite well. And this is a message for Canada. And what this psalm does, it shows you a profile. What a Christian, what a believer's thankfulness uh, will look like. What will your life look like if you are a Christian? What ought it to look like? And those three things it tells you to do, we'll look at really quickly, is it'll tell you to look up, around, and out. And those are the three things we're going to look at quickly. So first, let's see how the psalm urges us to look up and how that radically changes the way we, we think about thanksgiving. And let me begin with a gift, the idea of a gift. So we just passed Christmas. And if you were to think about what a gift is, you would probably define it, and rightly so, as something, I can move away from here, perfect. Um, as something given from one, by one person to another person without the expectation of repayment. That's a gift. And that is a good definition. But do you notice what it does? And it's a distinctly Western, modern Western dis- definition. Because it leaves out the responsibility of the receiver. It tells you that I give you something, but it doesn't really say much about what you ought to do with that gift. Um, So for instance, and and it's actually right in the the way we speak about it, so we basically think in this culture in Canada that when I get a gift, that's the end of the lifespan of the gift. It's no longer a gift. So if you were to come give me an iPad, which I will accept, um, (laughs) if you give me an iPad, I would say, what? If you came two weeks later and said, hey, nice iPad, I would say, thank you, that was a gift. It's no longer a gift. It was a gift. Now it just is numbered among the catalogs of my possessions. That's it. It becomes mine. And this is a very different way of looking at gifts than the Bible looks at it and even ancient cultures. And here's an an illustration that'll help you see it is maybe by looking at the, the first peoples of Canada, the natives when, when, when Europeans got here, we created this very derogatory term called Indian giver. Now, do you know where that term comes from? It comes from a distinct difference in how we understand gifts. So let's use an example. If I am a, a, a governor and I'm living in York, old Toronto, and I go to visit a local tribe and I meet with a chief and out of honor and respect, he gives me a gift and he might give me Not this version. That's a peace pipe, but that's like the Amazon kind you'd buy for like $3. It's not a nice one, but I couldn't find a better picture. But you would get a peace pipe, let's say, as a gift from the tribe. You would then, as a good European, take that gift, and you'd put it on your mantle at home because it's now mine, and I don't want to get it dirty, so I leave it up there. It's a nice memento. So when three weeks later, the tribal chief comes to your home and says, Hey, there's my pipe. Let's have a smoke from it you would say, e- you know, it's, I want to keep it clean. Uh, it's not really a, a working pipe. It's more of an a ornamental pipe, so uh, no thanks. Let's smoke from something else. And the Indian chief would then say to you, well, then give me the pipe back because that gift was not meant for you. It's meant to be used. It's meant to be shared. And then, of course, comes the term, Indian giver. But the, dis- the problem was the Indian people who were here before us, the natives, they understood something. They understood that gifts are not meant to be hoarded, but to be shared. That they're meant to be kept in circulation and constantly moving, like a billiards ball. The ball ought not to stop moving until it's transferred its momentum to another ball. And this isn't new, it's kind of new to modern Canada, but it's rooted in so many things, including uh, a brother's, those are the Brothers Grimm, by the way, there's a Brothers Grimm fairy tale, which by the way are, are not good bedtime reading if you read them in the original. They're terrifying. And this one is no better. It's a little known one called The Ungrateful Son. And it's very short, and here's the gist of it. There's a man sitting down to eat his roasted chicken dinner. But as he's about to dig into it, he sees coming down the road his father, and he has no interest in sharing his roasted chicken with his father. So he puts the chicken behind a door, and he entertains his dad They have a drink, and then he sends his dad on the way. And then the man goes back to get his roasted chicken. But of course, it's being a fairy tale, uh, he finds that the chicken has turned into a toad. And the toad jumps on his face and sticks there. And the toad will not go away. And the toad will eat at his face continually unless he feeds it constantly. And the moral was saying greediness and the desire to hoard because you worry about your own security is gotta be fed constantly. And you're just feeding your toad every time you hoard the pipe, hoard the iPad that you ought to be seeing those gifts as something that ought to be pushed back out into the world, okay? And now that mentality is strange because, you know, we see see things as something to be hoarded. We're saving for our retirement. We're saving for school. We're doing all kinds of things. Now, those can be good in their own way, but the Bible actually has a radically different understanding of it that comes through in this psalm that says, don't hoard it. It's actually the opposite. If you hoard it, you're not going to have it. But if you give it away, you'll find it. Now, this is a, not a hard and fast rule. It doesn't mean if you give the, you know, this is the common evangelical problem, give the church 10 bucks and you'll get 20. Well, that's not true, um, but, the, but, the, but the premise there is, is seen in this Psalm right at the outset because do you notice the way it starts? It starts with the ironic blessing, okay? May God be gracious to us and bless us. So first of all, thanks God, give me more. Strange beginning. But look what it says, what the motive is. Give us more, that you may be known on the earth. See, the Hebrews were full of individualists. Okay? They were selfish, just like us. But they had this communal understanding that was resident in the ancient world a little more than it is today, of recognizing that gifts were meant to be pushed outside of the borders, that were not meant to be kept and hoarded. Okay? And... Um, The antidote then, as I've written here, the antidote then for deep-rooted selfishness is to look up, to look up at God for your example. Now, this is what's coming across early. What that example is, is not quite clear. Like, see, because you could be argued, well, if I look up at God, how does that make me less selfish? Hold on, the Psalm is gonna tell you precisely how you actually become less selfish by the time we get to the end. So for now, let's stay on that first point and say, the first thing that a thankful person does is look up for their standard of how to receive God, how blessing and gifts are to be seen, how thankfulness is to be understood, not look at, look at one another. Now, the second thing would be we look around. So if the Psalm challenges our selfishness, but it also challenges the individualism of the culture, okay, and our culture is very individualistic, Canada is, North America is in general, the Western world is, and a psychologist named Martin Seligman, who wrote an article for the Globe and Mail, a few, I think a year ago, um, not a Christian, as far as I know, but he has something very insightful to say about why we are so individualistic. And it's all right. there, here he is. Here's what he says. In the past quarter century, events occurred that so weakened our commitment to larger entities as to leave us almost naked before the ordinary assaults of life. Where can one now turn for identity, for purpose, and hope? When we need spiritual furniture, we look around and see that all the comfortable leather sofas and stuffed chairs have been removed, and all that's left to sit on is a small, frail folding chair, the self. Now, what he's saying is this. If you were born in 1995, you lived through Columbine, through 9-11, through, uh, I think it's around 250 mass shootings in North America since then. Just... All kinds of atrocities, church scandals, school scandals, Pol- politicians are crooked as ever. So, what happens is we have rejected those institutions, he is saying. We've looked around and realized, I can't trust anybody. I can't trust them. So, who can I trust? Me. So, we retreat into ourselves and we become more insular, more, more protective. The problem is, as he is pointing out, we look inside and we realize that it's just not enough that our own lives, we can't look into ourselves because we are not sufficient to weather the world's questions. So the world has removed the idea of the, of the transcendent of God and of spirit, spirituality and all these things. It's all natural. But just because we've removed the vocabulary from the culture doesn't mean we remove the longing. The human heart continues to long for something beyond itself. The problem is we look at ourselves and we find nothing. Now, If that is the case, this is why this psalm is so important. Now it is a liturgical psalm, so it was used corporately, but it intentionally avoids uses of the personal pronoun. It only talks about us, not about me or my. Now that makes sense if you're singing it in in a liturgical context but it's also important for us because it's precisely what we need to be more focused on here is to realize that we actually need one another. We have to not just look up, but we must look around at each other and see the church that God has put us into. And the reason we have to so many reasons, but it's so I'll use only one example because we only have a few minutes, but it's disheartening to see so many Christians and maybe there's some in the room who think that you can be a fully functioning Christian outside of the church body. Um, you don't have to. You don't go to my church, so I can. Dis, you can disagree with me. You're wrong. You're very wrong. And at very least, we could give theological reasons. But let me give you more of a heartfelt reason that is also theological. And it comes. Uh, it's rooted in a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis, as you know, was part of the, a group of, of friends and intellectuals called the Inklings at Oxford, and included J.R.R. Tolkien and a few others. At one point, one of the members named Charles Williams dies, and he dies um, unexpectedly, and. Lewis is writing about that friendship and how that loss has impacted him and the group. And listen, it's profound what he says. He says, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald, that's Tolkien's, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself. Where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul, seeing Him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That says, uh, that says an old author is why the seraphim in Isaiah, Isaiah's vision, are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we share, we thus share the heaven, heavenly bread between us. The more we shall have. What he's saying is this. When you leave the church, when you don't go to life group or home group because you're tired, you think you're gaining something. I'm gaining sleep. I'm gaining time. You're actually not only losing, but you're depriving the rest of the church by joy, support, encouragement, and insight. Because I only see God, for instance, in my very narrow lens. And the DMin program helps you, by the way, with that. You see your tunnel vision. And you see the people around you have different perspectives. And far from being in any way diminished, I see far more of God in my classmates. Because of my classmates. And the church is under the impression that I can worship God and know him sufficiently on my own. You cannot. You're going to be an impoverished Christian forever. And this psalm reminds us that we... Are something We have to be thankful for one another. As sin-riddled and pockmarked as the body is, that's what Victor Shepard once taught me, um, as sin-riddled and pockmarked as the church is, it's Christ's only body, so you better love it. He's right. So we ought to look up for our standard, look around in thankfulness. But you see, if we leave it there, if this is all we have is a God who has now broken us from a bit of our selfishness and broken, broken us from our individualism, then all we have is a bigger little person, because what he has done is he has made somebody who only looked at himself as somebody who now fights for his tribe, his church. And that leads to people saying, my church is better than yours. And that is not enough. You see, you're just a big little, a bigger little person. What you need is your perspective to be pushed outward, beyond even the tribe to the entire world. And here's what you actually see in this psalm as well. We see in verse verses 3 to 5, Fascinating here. It says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Now, whenever a psalmist refers to peoples or nations in the plural sense, and here it is, um, it's goyim and uh, it's lehumim, I believe it is, and it's the plural sense of those words, he is always referring to the world. If it was singular, nation and people, it would refer to Israel, but he's not. So here we have the Israelite people praying for the world to benefit from their blessing. So you see how the vision now of thankfulness gets pushed out. It's no longer about me. It's not even just about these people that I love, that I commune with, but it's now about pushing that blessing outward to the rest of the world. Um, and this natural, other, this unnatural for us anyway, other focused life is the actual natural extension of being thankful. Again, C.S. Lewis in his book about the psalm says, you know, have you ever noticed, you always want to share things that satisfy you. When you see a, a great movie, you want to tell someone. When you hear a great joke, the enjoyment of that joke is actually not complete until you've shared it. You're kind of busting, like, I've got to tell somebody this joke. And you haven't enjoyed it until you've shared it. And Christianity is the exact same thing. When you are satisfied in Christ, you'll tell people. Now, you don't want to be obnoxious in doing it, which we are guilty of sometimes, but you won't be able to suppress it. And this is what, what the psalm is driving us to. But here's, I'll close here with this. We still have a big problem. Because how does a good potato harvest in Prince Edward Island make the world rejoice and praise God? You See, that's what they're saying. They're saying, thank you for the harvest, O Lord. Give us more so that the world will rejoice and re- worship. By the way, when they're calling for worship, they're calling for a restoration of the original sense of creation in Eden. Worship was broken in the garden, and the call to have the world's worship again, the whole world, is a call to see restoration. So how does a harvest in Israel lead the world to say, well, if Israel's got a great grain harvest, it must be God, praise him. That doesn't happen. So we have a problem. How does you and I being blessed with things, or health, or whatever we get blessed with, cause us to become less selfish? tells us to become to look at other people and draw other people to God. Well, the answer comes at the end. In the very last verses, look at the tenses he uses here. The earth has, past tense, yielded its fruit. So, because Israel has now got their blessing, they ought to be somewhat satisfied, but look what they say. God our king shall bless us. Isn't that strange? It's like on Christmas Day, my kids coming to me and saying... Oh, look how, look how dad has blessed us, and he's going to bless us more. So, well, it'd be very presumptuous if it was me, but fortunately, this isn't me we're talking about here. But this is, you see, it's very curious that all at once, God has blessed them, and yet they're anticipating a greater blessing. They're looking forward to something else. Ultimately, they're looking for what was in verse one. They want God's face to shine upon them. But they recognize, much like you and I ought to, from Genesis 4, remember what the problem was with Cain? Cain, why is your face downcast? Don't you know if you look up? It doesn't say if you do right. It says if your face is lifted up, your paneum is lifted up again, you, it will be right with you. What they are calling for is how do I, as a, as a people of Israel who have been blessed, how do I face God again? How could I possibly face him? Because I can't, I'm still in my sin. And they're longing for a time when God will bless us even more than the harvest. And we, when we let a crack of light from the New Testament in, we begin to see what that is, you see. Because remember in Mark 15, when the, the, the centurion looks up and Christ has died, the centurion looks up and it says he turned his face up. And when he faced the cross, he saw, said, surely this is the son of God. See, the Psalm hints at only a, a touch of what we have full taste of. They could just have an idea of a future blessing. You and I live in a spot now where we, because Christ looked up and saw nothing while he was on the cross, we can look up and find him. And because of that, that is the only motivation that will cause you and I to become less selfish. Otherwise, we're going to feed the toad continually. And if we don't look at the cross and hear this grace that God has given us. When you see that, when you see that you deserve so much worse, worse than a toad, but you've been given grace, you'll look around at your sinful brothers and sisters and you'll say, praise God. Praise God for them. Thank you for what you've given me. Give me more so that my neighbor will love you. So that everyone, the whole world will worship like we are. But the only way you'll do it is by looking at the cross and seeing that you've been accepted before you were a worshiper. Before you were, uh, while you were still selfish, selfish, He treated you as if you were unselfish. And because we are now kings, queens, princes of the king, we then can go out into the world and pray this and be this church that he has called to do all his good in the world and to help him to restore the image, the marred image, but not the defaced, but not effaced image of God on creation. That's all. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the Old Testament. God, help us to become wiser as we try to preach. It help us to come and to see that um, your church didn't begin. The mandate to share the gospel didn't start with the Great Commission in Matthew. It started at creation. when you say, And in Exodus, when he you said, you're going to pour yourself out into this people so that they may know you, so that they can tell the rest of the world who you are. God, show us that all these things, all these, as we've been saying in our classes, all the imperatives of what we ought to do with our lives, how we ought to serve These are things that we don't do to earn your salvation, but because we are already kings, because we are co-heirs, we are seated, I don't even know how, miraculously with you, seated with you at the right hand of the Father. We're up there. Um, Because we're already there, God, let that be the motivation of our hearts that drives us out into the streets, into our homes, our communities, our workplaces, to bring the gospel to bear in whatever context we are in. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for all those things. Thank you for the reminder from the worship team this morning of that as well. And, and from your incredible word, this little-known, underappreciated, but powerfully powerfully crafted psalm that came from your spirit. God, we love you. We ask this all in Jesus' great name. Amen. And now there's nothing else happening except for my benediction for you. So let me uh, send you out with this benediction that you would go out into the world to be agents of, agents of gospel change. That you would go out first and foremost knowing that your failure as a, as a gospel agent doesn't change your status. And your success doesn't give you a bigger crown. You've got it all. So you can be bold. (laughs) You can be bold as you serve. So go out in all the confidence that Christ has given you and all the assurance you have in his great name. Amen.